Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Living free. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kHz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past and present and to acknowledge that this land was stolen, that sovereignty was never ceded. Each week on the Living Free Show... We showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Uh, my guest today is an alcoholic who's recovering with the help of Al- Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, I'd like to welcome Jenny to the show. Hi, Jenny. Hi. Jenny, would you like to share some of your early life with us and your introduction to drugs and alcohol? In hindsight, I can say that I didn't have a very happy childhood. I think perhaps that's because I never really felt wanted and I did become aware that I was sort of an unexpected pregnancy. My parents were very young and it was during, uh, I was born in 1952. I grew up in post-war London and there was a severe housing shortage. So consequently, my first memories are of an old Victorian house, which had no power. It was lit by, it was just on, we had just had two rooms on the ground floor in Brixton in London. Uh, There was no power and there wasn't running water. I I remember being bathed in a hip bath. So Poverty was part of my story and I do remember as a very young child sort of hiding from the rent man, (laughs) some rent man. In the UK there are letterboxes and so my mum would tell me to like sort of get down under the letterbox if we were anywhere near there. Yeah, so that was part of my story. Food shortages too, things like that, there was still rationing. One issue was with another tenant of the building, an older child who was severely mentally disabled, and she was quite violent. And one memory I have is having my hand shutting a door and screaming and screaming until someone came. I'm also aware that my parents marriage wasn't very happy. It was kind of a shotgun marriage, really. And there was a lot of quiet conflict, passive-aggressive sort of thing. My father was very absent. I think he was having affairs now. And um, consequently, my mother wasn't happy. I'm not surprised she wasn't happy. She was only 18 and struggling to stand on a chair to light the gas lights every night and trying to make ends meet with a rather difficult baby, me, who cried a lot and didn't sleep. And 
I don't remember this because I'm not sure whether I was three months old or three years old, but apparently she left me with the lady with the difficult child. She she left me. Um, when my father came home from work, he went back to his in-laws. My mother couldn't handle being, she missed me, so she came back. But my parents never really had a very happy relationship. And they finally divorced shortly after I'd run away from home at the age of 18. So consequently, I didn't have social interactions with other children my own age and other children very much at all. And I remember being very fearful of people, very afraid of saying the right thing. My first day at school, I sat on a bench according to my mum and couldn't talk to any of the other children. I have since discovered that I have all the markers for autism and that would make sense in my history to me. Now that I'm 72, it seems pretty pointless to pursue that track because I, as my GP said, well, you've learned to cope and it was mostly undiagnosed in your era. And if anything, I quite like it now because I have an insight into why I have difficulties with people and why I can be the way I am. And in some ways I find that if it, if I do have that neuro neurodivergence, quite an advantage as well as a disadvantage. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps in the past. Anyway, look, to cut things short, I had great difficulties interacting socially with anybody. I had very poor oral communication skills and I lived pretty much in my own head. So I loved homework, so I guess I was a, an ideal student except that I didn't contribute in class. I struggled with my nerdiness, <laughs> which was accentuated by the fact that I wore those round national health glasses <laughs> and was called four eyes and tended to be a bit on the plump side and uncoordinated and definitely academically minded and that was really not girly at the time in the 1950s. In fact, one of my memories from primary school was being asked, girls, what do you want to be? Well, the boys were actually asked first. Girls, what do you? And the list of possibilities for girls was severely restricted. And it was mainly service roles. And interestingly enough, I have gone into a service role in my profession, which was teaching. So do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, sort of friendships at school? It took me a long time to develop my first friendship. I think I was at the upper end of primary school. Uh, when I had my first close friend and we remained friends for a long time, even though my family moved and I changed primary school and then we went to different high schools. So I lost track of Miriam. I met her once or twice again when I was still, when, when I was in secondary school, 
but because we moved to a different part of London, I really did not have close friends. I was very much a loner and very much afraid of people. And that has persisted throughout my life, really, until I came into AA at the age of 68. Oh, really? Okay. (laughs) Was there any change moving from sort of primary to secondary school for you? Yeah, saying it were there changes as I reached puberty. I suppose the urge to fit in became much stronger when I went to high school. In the UK, there was a system called the 11 plus, and that meant that I was streamed to go to a grammar school, which was very academic. And I desperately wanted at my grammar school to fit in with the cool kids. I really didn't fit in anywhere. I remember my first week, my parents listened to classical music. So when we had to write our first essay about myself, I wrote that I liked classical music, but I quite liked the Beatles. And everybody, you know, immediately that sort of pinpointed me as a nerd. So I learned very quickly. Ah, yes. So this was my go-to to see what other people did and copy them. So whether it's part of my autism or whether it was part of anxiety, social anxiety, severe social anxiety, which has kept me almost speechless for years. I'm really not sure, but um, I very quickly learned at high school that the cool thing to do was to like the Rolling Stones and, you know, all the up-and-coming bands of the 60s. And so I tried to emulate the fashions and the values and uh, I even put on a Cockney accent to try to sound like uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Academically, I did quite well at high school, but I was one of those students that tried to hide away, you know, at the back of the room. Mm. So with the groups that you were mixing with, was anybody into drugs and alcohol at that time? No, not at that stage. And during my time of living in the UK, I really led quite a sheltered existence. And I left the UK at the age of 14 to come to Australia. And that actually was a big event for me. I think in hindsight, I suppose it was quite traumatic. In the absence of really close friends at school, I was very close to my cousins. I was not happy at home. My mother was quite strict and uh, wouldn't allow me to do the things that other kids' parents would do. She was quite controlling, controlled what I wore, and even if I hated something, I would have to wear it. And so... uh, I missed out on seeing Jimi Hendrix at the age of 14 because I had to stay in and do my homework. But in hindsight, that's probably a good thing. But, no, drugs and alcohol weren't part of my story until really until I ran away from home at the age of 18. 
And my parents weren't alcoholics. Yeah. So did you start using drugs and alcohol before you ran away or did you run away to try to break free? I think I ran away to try to break free. I actually ran away during the SWAT back. This is the old days of HSC when we had a SWAT back. During the last days of SWAT back with my current boyfriend, and I had an opportunity to escape because I was babysitting my 14-year-old brother. Right. That 14-year-old brother died two years ago of liver cancer. So he was an alcoholic and a poly addict like myself. So any substance at all he would take, and that was pretty much my MO as well. Yeah, yeah. And I feel that he looked up to me because in many ways I was like a surrogate parent. And when my parents came here, we lived in a migrant hostel for just over two years in Fisherman's Bend. And after they left the hostel, they kept connections. They went back for parties and whist drives and all kinds of the social activities that they'd had then. At that point, too, they started to hold weekend parties and they were quite drunken affairs. And I was quite judgmental. I, I could be very judgmental. So I remember as a 17 and 18-year-old being quite bolshy, being very judgmental about their drinking, and I really disliked drunken behaviour. And when I first ran away from home, that was in 1970. So drinking was really not cool, and I always tried very hard to be cool. So, in fact, the group of us in St Kilda, this is where I went to live in St Kilda, so I sort of jumped into a hotbed of smoking dope, dropping trips, eating mushrooms, and then I gradually came to know, I guess, a network of acquaintances, some of whom used hard drugs as well. And we referred to people who drank alcohol as juice freaks was the phrase at that stage. I didn't like drunken behaviour. I've never liked the effect of alcohol. And that's why it's quite astounding that I should somehow trigger or unleash or express that alcoholism in me. And I definitely recognise today that I'm an alcoholic because I did become a daily drinker when I put down everything else. Okay. Well, so we might take a break there. Our first song is called Uncomfortably Happy by Jess Locke, a new release courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project.
in Community Radio. Come along to the NEMBC Multicultural Women's Forum, A Seat at the Table, where we can meet online and network, share experiences and learn new skills. This forum is being held in Adelaide in a hybrid format, so you can join in online as well. If you're from a multicultural background and involved in radio or interested in radio broadcasting, then this forum is for you. Let us meet on Saturday, 10th of February, 2024, for a day of interesting talks, training sessions and fun activities. Please register at admin at nembc.org.au. A link will be sent to you closer to the date. If you need more information, please send an email or visit our Facebook page, Women Broadcasters. A 3CR supporter. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Welcome back. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you'd like to listen to one of our many podcasts, uh, you can find them on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. Today I'm talking with Jenny about alcoholism and drug addiction and her recovery through the fellowships of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. Um, Jenny, before the break, we are talking about you're sort of moving out of home and uh, going to live in St Kilda with a, a group of people who, a uh, group of acquaintances who um, were using milder and heavier drugs and things. So do you want to talk about your life at that point and, and what happened in that, I guess, that social arrangement and your relationships with these people and, you know, where your drinking and drugs took you? All right. <laughs> it's hard to know where to begin. I did mention that I'd run away from home to live with a boyfriend. Now, the boyfriend, there was really not a close emotional attraction. I think I had just jumped. He was just a vehicle for getting away from home. And honestly, I've always been afraid of doing anything on my own. So that's really what I've looked to partners to, to do. The partners in my life, other than one, I've not been very, well, actually two perhaps. One who died of suicide when I was, um, I shortly got, got out of fairly women's prison, which I'll come to, <laughs> and the father of my children. So really we had very little in common except that he had the required long hair and was tall and looked the part. <laughs> it's very rude to say about a person that he had nothing between the ears. But at that, at that stage I think I was trying to hide 
my intellectual tendencies. I was trying to, for some reason, I always masked who I was and I've always tried to suss out what persona I should put forward in a certain situation and do that. So I can do it that professionally or I can do it in pretty much any situation. So it had got to a point in my life where I don't know which Jenny is talking to whom and I don't know what my core values are and I'm not really clear about what I believe in. And there's a strange tension between that and the fact that I do have very, I've always kept pretty much the same values socially and politically. I have very strong beliefs. And they have partly been fed by counterculture that I was involved in for a long time. But I think the counterculture also reflected a lot of the ideas that I still hold, left-wing and progressive politically, and that, I guess, was something that drew me to the counterculture as well as the drug-taking and so on. And I believe that I was also seeking some kind of, like many, many kids in our late and early teens seeking some kind of meaning or purpose in life. I wasn't religious. I had quite a good grounding in um, the New and Old Testament because it was taught at my grammar school, but I didn't actually believe in anything. And I guess I was seeking something to believe in. So as well as the thrill of it, I guess I was looking for a spiritual experience in the psychedelics and my attitude was that there is a quick fix, there is a pill, there is a chemical, there is something that I can do quickly to click a switch and have this wonderful spiritual experience. I suppose I wanted things without having to work for them. And I think part of that is from my background because that's my mother's attitude somewhat at all yeah. as, as well, you know. <laughs> Got a bit of a headache, ring the GP, take this pill for this and that pill for that. Um, so I think part of that's environment and part of that is just me. <laughs> so how did you move into work? Uh, my first job actually was at a jeweller shop around the corner and I was terrified. Um, I, I was terrified of any real-life situations. I was terrified of people in authority. I was terrified of going for a job interview. I had absolutely no life skills. I never learned how to manage money. I never learned how to pay bills. I'd learned useful stuff like Latin at the grammar school but I had no practical or technical abilities whatsoever and I just didn't know how to do do the normal things that everyday people do in life. You know, I didn't know how to hold, get a job, hold down a job, and the job was in retail, so that was a disaster. 
I wasn't very good at it. I wasn't very good at all because I was terrified of talking to customers. And in the back of my mind, I'd be hoping they would walk in and be just looking and go. <laughs> it was awful. But I hung in there for a year. And then when I, I, I reached the age of 21, they let me go. But I don't think I was a particularly good employee. And at that stage, I was pretty much keeping my drug use to the weekend, but it had crept into during the week. At this stage, I wasn't really drinking. I don't think I really had a drink until I was in my early 20s. I mean, I had gone out on dates when I was first living at home and drunk. And I do recall that I drank quite quickly and got drunk quite quickly and didn't particularly like it, but it was almost as if something was driving me on. Mm. Did you drink to blackout or not? I have drunk to blackout, but much later, but not my first experiences with alcohol. I just became very, very sick a couple of times. I really had quite a sheltered um, life up until quite late, you know, school <laughs> um, was it. And school actually was my life. It was one of my escapes, not actually the going to school and the rules and the stuff, but burying myself in books and getting lost on some sort of tangent yeah. <laughs> in the studies that I was doing was so was all-consuming to me. And I realised it was because I hated being self. I wanted something outside myself. That's why I chose such disastrous boyfriends. Yeah. I was always looking for something that would fix me. Yeah. And that's where the chemicals came in. Yeah. So did you have any problems, you know, paying for drugs? Yes. Eventually I did. Once I started using harder drugs, heroin, cocaine, basically whatever was on offer, and then that accelerated. I had thought quite slowly but if I look at the timeline actually quite quickly, given that I probably didn't start using intravenous drugs until 1971, and by 1972 I was needing to spend about $90 a day, which was a lot of money then, on heroin. Mm, yeah. That was a lot of money then. That was not something that I could do. I could earn the money for legally. So I had brief periods of working in the public service and I left first. I left the Department of Army I worked for, which is, which I guess shows how far I departed from my core values because at that stage we were still in Vietnam and I was bitterly opposed to that. But here I am working in the Department of Army after the duelist. And then I went back because Commonwealth Public Service was a, I went back to the Department of Education and my job there was calculating Commonwealth scholarship benefits for recipients. But basically I was double shifting and trying to earn money to go to India 
with an acquaintance that I've met and the purpose was to do, I guess this shows some insanity and also shows how easily led I was. So I was double shifting at the public service during the day and I was working at, I think it was called Bananaramas in those days, or it was where lay girls were, anyway, mm-hmm. I think, as a drink hostess. Now, my memory is not very good because, uh, understandably. So I was saving money to go overseas to India, and I think around that stage, yes, I quit all the other jobs and started working in what was euphemistically called massage parlours. And the massage parlours in the 70s were quite strict because um, prostitution then was illegal. And we basically what we did was they were called specials. That was a hand job. I'll be quite blunt about it. Anything more than that could get us the sack in, in a massage parlour, as they were called. I mean, technically it's still prostitution. And that was where my drug use really accelerated because I found I was starting to use on a daily basis. I may have gone started going to the methadone clinic at that stage. And I went to India initially for six weeks prepaid, the flight was paid and so on, but not accommodation. And the purpose was to go to Nepal, buy some hashish, and bring it back to Australia in suitcases. Not a very good plan. (laughs) Not a very good plan at all. At that stage, I didn't have a criminal record. I had been in India for a week, in Kathmandu for a couple of days. The person who was a boyfriend of a friend of mine was also another user and also um, working in the massage parlour slash brothel with me. We bought some hash in Kathmandu from the same person, very, very silly. <laughs> so we really didn't know what we were doing. We were smoking too much. The day before our bus was supposed to take us to the train station on the border at Patna, we were late, so we glued down the false bottoms really quickly and jumped on them, packed the bags, and I think we actually had shoulder bags and actually threw in a couple, a, a loose kilo or so in the shoulder bag. Um, the level of, I mean, what was I thinking? At the border we were searched. I think there was probably one log about a kilo, perhaps, of hash in the bag I was carrying. They ripped the bottom out of the suitcase. They found the whole lot. And we were taken in handcuffs on a train to, I believe we went to a courtroom first where it was all in, the case was in Hindi, and we were sent off to Morihari Prison in Bihar State. I, I was terrified. <laughs> and A, I didn't know what had happened in court because it was, I didn't speak Hindi. I believe we tried to give the 
police some money on the train. Um, I wasn't doing the talking, but my partner was. But it wasn't accepted, probably wasn't enough. <laughs> we probably put all our money into that hashish. So the fact that we were both on British passports at the prison actually was helpful because the prison officer, and I was just absolutely awful. I was such an arrogant person in those days. Like the first food that was offered, I think I threw at the poor person who was only another prisoner with a guard who brought it in, refused to eat it, just behaved really, really arrogantly and badly. But the governor of the jail agreed that we he thought he'd better feed us. So we, we didn't want the offer of meat because of the office. So we settled on two eggs a day. And I think that sustained us for three weeks. It was probably the governor of the jail that suggested a young lawyer who we were his first big case. And he got us in front of a magistrate at a certain date a week later. This was going to be in English. And he said, this magistrate is bribable. This is what it will cost you. And we were able through the jail to contact the girlfriend of my the van that I was in India with, and she sent money. She was earning quite good money as a prostitute. She sent the money to pay the magistrate. He gave us the five kilos of hash. He, he recognised we'd been in jail for a week, so he gave us another two weeks, and that was the most amazing good luck that, but it does point to something that I, my way of dealing with things was almost always illegal and crooked and bent and twisted. <laughs> okay, well, so we might take another break there. Our next song is called Bury Me in the Ground by the Hayden Coonan Music Group. And again, it's courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project.
Second time I'll die, they'll no longer cry, cause I'll soon forget my name. Bury me in the ground, they're gonna bury me in the ground. When my time has come and my days are done, they're gonna bury me in the ground. Bury me in the ground, gonna bury me in the ground. Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse, dynamic and radical radio station. Nominations are due by Wednesday the 14th of February at 5pm. For more information, contact the 3CR station manager on 03 9419 8377 or download the nomination form at the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au forward slash people. Don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid? Tune into the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. 12pm on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 and AM Dial podcast streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. Uh, This is the Living 3 show on 3CR Digital Radio, live streaming on 3cr.org.au. And today I'm talking with Jenny about alcoholism and drug addiction and her recovery through the fellowships of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. So, Jenny, before the break, we were talking about getting out of getting out of prison in India. So do you want to tell us a bit about the immediate aftermath of that and, I guess, getting back to Australia and then how your life changed once you had that experience? Well, yes, look, you would think that that, that experience would have been enough, but... Uh, it wasn't, and my drug use accelerated. And the heroin stage and anything else that I could accelerated to the point where I decided with the girlfriend that I was sharing a house with to withdraw from our methadone maintenance. Again, being bolshy, we didn't like the restrictions of the clinic and the urine samples and that we thought it was punitive and lecturing and so on and so forth. Let's do cold turkey, we thought, and we'll get hold of a whole lot of barbiturates, we'll knock ourselves out, and that will be the end of that. So not looking at all at what were the circumstances that made me behave so insanely, just thinking that, All I have to do is put down the heroin quickly and I'll be okay. I wasn't recognising that that the heroin was really a solution for me. Okay, at this stage I still really drank very little. The consequence of that attempt to uh, cold turkey was that I ended up holding up a chemist around the corner. A week later I was busted for that. And I got a four-year maximum service uh, sentence with a two-year minimum. 
I was on bail for a year. I continued to use. But I think my actual using illegally had cut down because I was on methadone. Uh, in fairly, I did my HSC again. I was there for, I served about 16 months of the two years. I got into university. I started going to university. So the governor said, I've just replaced one addiction with another. So I was clean when I got out fairly. However, I went back to the same boyfriend I had, and two days later, I was using again. But still going to university and kind of kind to, to control my drug use to some extent. Not all that successfully, but I was just, I did manage to get my degree. Okay, so I'm not going to talk about a lot of things that happened in the meantime. There was a lot of trauma, I think. For example, the partner to, that I returned to, he suicided and I felt a lot very much responsible for not getting help as quickly as I should have done, not recognising his symptoms because uh, he was in bed next to me. And when the ambulance came, um, he was he was dead. And I think that I already had untreated alcoholism, addicted behaviours, and that death, which I felt a lot of guilt for, and I have made amends for, to, to that person through my sponsor, if no, they're dead, you can still make amends. And that triggered a descent into amphetamine use, which became worse than my heroin use had been. Very, very quickly I degenerated into, um, I remember one point even needing money to score. And while I pride, so I went back to working in brothels and they're full-blown brothels by this stage where anything goes. Still illegal. And I remember one day, for example, needing the money so desperately that I walked out onto Ackland Street near where I lived and got a couple of jobs really quickly on the street. So I, I mean, really, I had no, no self-esteem at all by that point, none. And that's where I started to drink because I found I could drink with and not get drunk. I mentioned before I don't like being drunk. However, I cannot stop drinking. And it took me a long time to recognise that that pattern of not being able to stop drinking was what makes me alcoholic. I masked it from myself and was in denial for so long, I think, because once I put down the mostly put down the amphetamines and then I picked up drinking even more, I would ring my speed dealer, not wanting to, but in order to sober myself up so that I could get some of the work done that I brought home. So I thought I was functioning because I had a job, a fairly responsible job, but I was not doing it well at all. And I was cautioned about my behaviour, which was quite shocking. 
I'm also ashamed to say that at that point of my life when I was using using amphetamines and drinking, doing both, and <clears throat> um, I bought very toxic, I had a, a relationship breakup with the father of my children. My son stayed with his dad. He was 14. My daughter, I, I had my daughter, and I brought some dreadful people into her life. Uh, and I was also in toxic, abusive relationships. I stole her childhood from her. I was totally, that's what addictions, that's what alcohol does. I think to most people, if we hit the rock bottom that most of us need, become totally self-absorbed, totally self-centred and totally rationalising what a behaviour is doing to other people. So she has seen things and experienced things that no child should have to. And that's something I have to acknowledge today and be accountable for. I did put down amphetamines eventually, but then my drinking accelerated. I have been diagnosed with hepatitis C quite some years ago and I took the old treatment, which made me very, very ill, taken off that, didn't cure the hepatitis C either, but the new treatment did. However, that has damaged my liver and drinking and damaged liver meant that I had cirrhosis, a patient at the liver clinic. The cirrhosis will always be there, but my liver function is improving now. And I have to say that that really was what drove me to seek help. Finally, someone at the liver clinic getting from me the truth about how much I was drinking, sitting down and talking to me, beautiful nurse, two hours, and I went home and I thought, Yes, I can't do anything about this. I can't help myself. It's the first time I really acknowledged that it wasn't a moral issue, I think. 50 years should have told me that it wasn't a moral issue, <laughs> that I could not control bad thinking with bad thinking. I couldn't control myself with, it, with myself. I needed something else. And I mentioned before that I've never had faith and that took me a long time and I came into AA. So I got into AA. So what was it like coming into AA at, with, you know, at that age and with your experience? Uh, well, uh, I had myself down as an intellectual who wasn't, <laughs> wasn't um, inclined to be brainwashed by a bunch of um, happy, clappy Bible bashers. So I was a little bit reluctant. And, you know, I have been to a psychologist for anxiety and depression who said, do you think you're alcoholic? And I said, oh, yeah. Well, you could try AA, but it might be a bit religious for you. So she obviously wasn't right shrink for me, but that's, um, yeah, I had those prejudices and, um Oh, if you'd, if you'd said that I need faith in a higher power, that word God, um, I thought I would never hear that word God come out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't need to know what 
God is to me. It isn't a person up there on a the cloud, but it is a spirit that is in is is in everything. It's in you, it's in me. And if I'm open to that, then I will feel it in my life. If I'm closed to that, then I've shut that out. That's how recovery feels to me today. Last night at an AA meeting, why did I choose AA more than NA? I am more active in AA. I guess because it was the first. I guess because I see stronger recovery there. And I would recommend that for any, that any listeners choose whichever fellowship works best for them. I do like about NA that they don't distinguish between substances, that alcohol is just another drug to be avoided. And I am certainly one of those junkers, if you like, who ditched the witch for the bitch, to use the cliché. But I think actually alcoholism is, is more of a, an issue for me than it's, it's just a symptom of a larger problem. And I think for alcoholics and addicts, it is a symptom of a larger problem. And I don't hold with the idea really very much that it's all trauma-based. Yes, I think that's a factor, but I, I think it's like a soul sickness. <laughs> Today, I honestly believe that it's got three manifestations, a physical craving, and a mental obsession and a spiritual malady, it says in our big book. And uh, I realised that there was a spiritual malady in me all along. And I guess the first time was when in the middle of the afternoon I had a chance, I think it was God or my higher power or whatever, sort of giving me a chance that first day outside the chemist when surprisingly I suddenly had a bag full of drugs I thought I'll probably be caught but that's okay because I can't stop myself I think it's the first time I ever acknowledged I can't stop myself but the denial was so strong that I wouldn't okay so I've been in AA since 2018 but I was a slow learner still <laughs> And I relapsed after about eight months of sobriety. And that's where I noticed that that seed that I had watered, but it was there, dormant, just waiting for. I noticed that I picked up a drink at a friend's party and I bought a bottle of wine on the way home and it was on again. But what I, what I did notice was that my thinking had changed. And the moment I had a drink, I noticed as if I was outside myself and watching myself. I noticed that I drank more quickly than anybody else. I had my glass out for the second glass of champagne. I felt triggered to buy a bottle of wine on the way home. But the worst thing was my thinking had moved backwards. I was starting to be fearful, anxious, had bad thoughts about people. I was just back in that sort of headspace. 
that I thought was a normal way of thinking for me. And I started to get a sense of something better. That was where I thought, no, I really have to commit to this. And I got myself a sponsor. I started going to meetings every day. I went through the 12 steps. I found that I was a bit stuck at step three. Um, I found myself another sponsor and we went through the steps very quickly through a way through, uh, way through Arch to Freedom. And it was at the fourth step where we take a fearless and moral inventory of ourselves that I finally saw my true self. And it wasn't a very nice picture, but it was a picture of someone who was psychically sick, I think. I'm lucky I had a really, really good sponsor, actually, and she still is my sponsor. And my first sponsor I'm very good friends with. It's still very close. And I've just gone through them again in a system called Big Book Awakening. Today I live and breathe AA. I love what AA has done for me. I love what I see it doing for other people. It is slowly restoring me to sanity. And I will always be an alcoholic. And that's why I need to practice this program principles in all of my life like I wake up I'm not an early morning person so I don't go to a meeting in the morning but I do my daily readings throughout the day if I'm feeling that we say running rough you know I'm starting to resent the person that cuts me off at the traffic or I have a you know I'm, I'm just feeling uncomfortable feeling fearful or whatever because I honestly say most of those fears for me were came from ego, which most fears do, and most of the time they've been removed. And while I can say the people in AA, the meetings, the routines, the, the steps themselves have done for me what I couldn't do for myself, I think there's something else, and that is what I think is my God, and it's a God that's specific to me. It's not sort of a Christian God or a Buddhist God or a, a Muslim God or any kind of. It's just a, a, a sense that things are okay in the universe as long as I'm okay in the universe. I'll be open. It's hard to explain. I can't. Yeah. Each person's concept, you know, is, is different. But, yeah, I, I share a similar belief that it's it's just not me. It's everything else that helps. And you know, it's, it's what I can't do but is being done without me. Yeah, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as we say, God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. I see that, not just in me but other people. Sorry I didn't get to talk more about uh, the recovery side. I think the three things, you know, it mentions unity, recovery and service. Service is important to me and that's why I was pleased to jump at doing this. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice feeling, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Okay, Jenny, well, that's about all we've got time for today. Um, so I'd like to thank Jenny for sharing her story of her alcohol and drug dependence uh, with us and talking about her involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and how they helped in her recovery. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up next, we have Bellamoir, The Spirit of Wire, hosted by Uncle Tal Jim Choco Edwards. 
Join Uncle Choco in the spirit of Wah on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call 03-9419-8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.